Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to History Becomes Her, a mashable podcast about women making history right now and the women who paved the way for them. I'm your host, Rachel Thompson, senior reporter at Mashable. Women account for around half the world's population, but they only occupy around half a percent of recorded history. For those of us who grew up learning a lot about Henry VIII, Oliver Cromwell, Christopher Columbus and Abraham Lincoln, you might have wondered what women were getting up to during this time. They were very busy, it turns out. Author and journalist Zing Singh is rectifying the erasure of women from history with her book series Forgotten Women. Her books provide fascinating biographies of the women who were notably absent from our history books. The women who changed the course of history, but didn't get a mention in the books we read at school. Hi there, my name is Zing Singh. I am the executive editor of Vice UK. I'm also a podcaster and I'm the author of the Forgotten Women series. So this is a podcast about women making history. And my first question is, who inspires you? And is there a particular woman who's had an effect on you? either from past or present? Mm -hmm. Well, I, this is very cringe, actually, because I sound like such a fangirl, but uh, I, when I was growing up, I was really obsessed with my grandmother, whom I never met. She's this woman called Julie Wong. I'm trying to remember her Cantonese name, but I'm afraid I'm going to mess up the pronunciation, so let's not. Um, <laughs> and I talk about her a little bit in the introduction to Forgotten Women, the Leaders. And she grew up during uh, the late 19th, 20th century. Um, and she had seven children in Hong Kong, which is quite a feat to survive that at, wow. at that time. Uh, and she also lived through World War II and she was a little bit of, well, I like to call her a war heroine. It's, she's definitely not in any registered books or anything. Um, but what she did during the war when the Japanese occupied Hong Kong was she would smuggle food to POWs in uh, internment camps. So Hong Kong which not a lot of people who aren't from Hong Kong know about, uh, was the site of several internment camps. If you were a British official or even if you looked, you know, a bit foreign, they would put you in these internment camps and many people starved to death. Uh, they put men, women, children in there. Uh, the Japanese were really ruthless about it. And my mother, my grandmother knew lots of people who'd been sent there because my grandfather's line of work, uh, he was a go-between between, between uh, shipping authorities in Hong Kong and the UK. Uh, through his work, she met a lot of these British people. 
and she knew many people who'd been incarcerated and she would smuggle tins of food to them through the fence, which basically meant that she would have to go past loads of checkpoints, loads of Japanese soldiers. And uh, famously, uh, at least famously in my family, uh, she once encountered a Japanese soldier while she was on her way on one of these missions. And she was holding my uncle, who was the firstborn, uh, a baby at the time, really, really innocent, really vulnerable. Um, I think she couldn't find anyone to take care of him at the time. So she just brought him along and the Japanese soldier stopped her and she knew there was, you know, something was going to happen because, you know, he had that air about him, I think, that of menace. Um, and then he asked, what are you doing? And she knew the question next was going to be, can I search you? Which would have immediately landed her in trouble. And instead, she replied in Japanese. She actually was born in Kyoto, which means that she spoke fluent Japanese. So she was one of the only people at the time who could converse pretty fluently with the occupiers. And the minute the soldier heard her Japanese, he just let her through and gave her an apple to give to my uncle. So yeah, I mean, it's stories like that that I really enjoy hearing about. And I think she's kind of become a little bit of a hero to me because... Mm -hmm. You know, here's this woman who, by all accounts, is, you know, a housewife, mum to seven kids, but she's still doing these incredibly brave things on the sly. And, you know, outside of my family, people don't really know about her. And that's why I like talking about her, because I think what she's shown me is that you can be a hero in a very private, quiet way. You don't need to talk about it. You don't need to brag about it. Um, But people still remember you. And I really like that. It's about like, everyday everyday heroism oh I love that yeah you just gave me goosebumps with that (laughs) I love that like the private histories of people as well which kind of brings me on to my next question because women only and you write this in your book women only occupy half a percent of recorded history and that you say that uh, women did okay in the 35,000 years before Christ was born but a nine out of 10 archaeological figures from that time are female. So what exactly went wrong and why did they suddenly just disappear from historical record? It's a tough question. (laughs) I don't know if there's any single answer. I feel like if there was a single answer, you could probably boil it down to patriarchy. (laughs) So, I mean, I think you get this point where societies become, if not actively hostile to women being independent, you know, covertly hostile. So, you know, women start to be thought of as baby machines, which, you know, you still see in some Mm. bits of the world and even in some bits of America. Um, You know, they get they become seen as caregivers, as nurturers, as people who take care of the domestic sphere, such as the home. So they get confined to that area. They're not allowed to explore anything beyond that. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there are plenty of women out there who are perfectly happy being housewives or mothers or people who are caregivers. But at the same time, I think what that means is when you only get thought of as being the master of a certain domain, you don't really get to explore other things. Mm. So, you know, you see this even in uh, discussions about politics. You know, women get so much more abuse than male politicians in politics. I think because when a woman is still in a position of authority or political power, she's seen as somehow transgressive in a way that really irks not just men, even some other women. And I think, you you know, you saw that with uh, Hillary Clinton's run for presidency. Mm. And it really hampers and holds women back because if you have to navigate so many different ideas of what you should be and what you should be doing, then you can't be yourself. 
you were nervous when you started writing Forgotten Women, the Forgotten Women series. And why, why was that? Oh, I mean, I think there was a little bit of nervousness around never having written a book before, let alone four books. And when I signed the contract to do the books, it was very much, this is a four book deal. So you have to be serious about it. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I did one and, you know, maybe I'm not going to do the other. It was never an option. Um, And I think also I was nervous because I didn't want people to kind of feel like, oh, here's this person imposing their view on the most important women in the world. You know, that's Mm. not what the book series is about. It's very much like an invitation to other people to kind of explore other bits of history and interrogate, you know, their own past, their own families, like, you know, with my grandmother, to see if there are any women who, you know, could be in their own Forgotten Women book. So I think I was really nervous about setting myself up on a pedestal and being like, here you, here you, here's the people you should give a fuck about, because that's very much, I guess, not my style, really. Um, And also because the book series is a really formidable project. It's almost 200 biographical profiles of women, which is a really big project to take on. And also because I didn't want it to kind of feel like scanning, you know, a kid's encyclopedia. You know, I wanted it to be really well researched. I really wanted it to, as much as possible, present their lives in their own words. Mm -hmm. So you see that a lot with Forgotten Women, the writers. I you know, quote people's poetry, I quote their memoirs, I quote their books. And, you know, where possible, for instance, in Forgotten Women, the Leaders, I'm quoting from their speeches, you know, stuff that they've actually said. So that takes up a lot of research time to try and find the right thing to put in these profiles to give a real flavor of who they were as a person. So I was, you know, I was super nervous. I went into, I guess, uh, you know, you know that feeling when you have a university essay mm-hmm. to hand in the next morning and you're just like frantic. So I went into that essay crisis mode for a period of like probably a year straight writing all of them. Whoa, that is a like a long period of time to be in that state. It's very, it's very, I feel like I'm still recovering. But the adrenaline <laughs> levels are still like leaving my body. Wow. So basically you felt this kind of pressure. How do you go about deciding who makes the cut in terms of who who are these important women? In terms of how I chose the women, so I didn't do this alone. Mm. There was a amazing professor of women's history called Gina Luria Walker. She's at the New School and she runs an organization called the New Historia, which is really interesting. If you're in academia, I really suggest you check it out. And it's basically doing what my books are doing, but for academia. Mm-hmm. So trying to bring to light these uh, women, especially in academia, their work and their research, trying to make sure that their work doesn't get forgotten. So she was really, really instrumental in helping me select and suggest women mm-hmm. uh, for the book series, because I'm not a historian, which I should probably preface this whole podcast with. I'm not a historian. I'm not a specialist. I am a lowly hack. Uh, <laughs> Not at all. Who nevertheless wrote four <laughs> books. And exactly. Gina was so amazing. She would tell me, you know, have you thought about including this person? What about this person? We're we're a little short on people from, you know, the 15th to the 17th century. What about this person? Because I was really anxious that, you know, the books were not just uh, diverse in terms of ethnicity and nationality, but also diverse in terms of historical time periods. Mm. I didn't want it all to be, you know based in the 15th century or something or you know just women from the 21st century or the 20th century I wanted it to feel like a proper spread because I think that way the stories feel really varied and really interesting and you're learning you know about all these different time periods but not through 
boring old Henry VIII. You're learning about it through, you know, the poets and the writers and the campaigners, you know, and the politicians who were living during that period. Mm. Like, I know I learned so much about so much about history through doing this research. And that's partly because of Gina's suggestions, because we did this insane spreadsheet where, you know, we had different columns for you know, sexual orientation, geography, location, ethnicity, time frame, and then we'll just go through and kind of select 48 for each book from there. And you mentioned Henry VIII, and this is something that you also mentioned in the book as well. I learned so much about the Tudors than any other thing in history. It's weird, isn't it? Right. Why do you think the Tudors are, are such a big deal? I know. I'm like, I don't understand why I didn't learn about, I didn't even learn about like stuff that happened in the UK. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't learn about the troubles at school. Yeah. Right. Well, well, this is the thing that I don't really get about the education system here, right? So there's mm. so much stuff going on in politics and current affairs now that directly relates to stuff that people should have learned about in school. History books have long had a gender problem, uh, but race plays a significant role as well. And to what extent have women of colour been erased from recorded history? Honestly, I think women of colour have been erased so much from the historical narrative. It's really odd for me, I think, growing up in Singapore and then coming over here and then realising, you know, what my friends and peers learnt about in school was so white. Mm. And they didn't even know it at the time. So obviously, when I grew up in Singapore, what I learned about in the history books was very much about Southeast Asian history. And to me, these things were very much given. So I learned about, you know, uh, World War II, but through the lens of the Japanese occupation. You know, I learned about uh, the independence movements that came about in the 20th century around Southeast Asian, Singapore's own independence movement. And then when you get to the UK, which is, you know, supposedly the heart of the British Empire, which had such a role to play in all these different movements and in all these different countries' histories, you speak to someone about it and they just have no idea. When we learn about when we learn history at school, it's often about the kings, queens and politicians of the past, many of whom have belonged to the kind of upper echelons of society. What role does class and wealth play in the people who were deemed worthy of being recorded in history? Oh my god. I mean I would say for a lot of history, the women who did get recorded were people of enormous privilege and wealth. Mm. And, you know, I will hold my hands up and say that a lot, you know, there are queens, duchesses, you know, landed aristocrats and forgotten women, because for a lot of history, you simply just didn't see or know about what working class people people's lives were like Mm. and I think that's definitely changing now I think historians are now very interested in going back to understanding what daily life was like for a regular person during those times but if you were a working class woman of color a newly arrived immigrant it was very unlikely that you were going to be put down in the history books in the 18th century it just Mm. almost didn't happen and I think there are some people who do by virtue of the fact they accomplished such amazing things, do get into the history books. So there's one woman in Forgotten Women, the leader's called Con- Concepcion Picciotto. I think it's Italian. So mm. if any Italian listeners are, read- are listening to this, sorry if I mispronounced that. But basically, she kind of came from nowhere. She was an Italian immigrant, I think. Um, and she led the longest longest running peace protest outside the White House. She died in the 2000s, I think. And she was essentially homeless, I think, for a lot Mm. of her life. She lived in a tent and she just would not leave the White House pavement because she was protesting nuclear war. And I wanted to put people like her in because 
to some extent, I think that a lot of politics is driven by the little people, little people like her. And it's people from the ground up who really push social movements forward. You know, I think for a lot of history, at least until, you know, the 18th, 19th century, history, power was very much dictated from the top. So it flowed downward. So, you you know, there's God, if God exists, you know, God giving power to the king or queen who then like cascades it downwards into his like little fiefdoms and, you know, whatever. Mm. And then eventually you get to the working classes, you know, the serfs, the peasants, the people who don't get a say in anything about how their lives are run. And I think the great kind of turning point for history is when those people started exercising power. So, you know, they get the right to vote, they get the right to own property, they get the right to an education. And I think that's when, you know, history gets really, really interesting, because then you have this total kind of flip in power dynamics. And when you were writing the series, was there one story in particular that kind of jumped out at you as particularly astonishing? Oh, I mean, her story was a story that basically Mm. prompted this whole series. Um, And she's called Qingxi. She's a seafaring pirate. Um, I like her because, you know, she kind of came from around the same area as like where my family are from, which is sort of like Guangzhou, uh, Guangzhou, Hong Kong area. Um, And she kind of came up through these floating brothels that kind of dotted the seaside. So, you know, if you were a pirate, you just like hang out at these like floating brothels and it was really like fun and a chill time to have, you know, you know, as a respite from seafaring. Basically what happened was she was working in one of these floating brothels and then she met the son of a really feared pirate king I guess you would call him who owned several thousand pirate ships who that would go around plundering the entire area and then when uh the son died she then started seeing shagging this her ex-husband's apprentice so sort of I guess her own stepson in a weird way anyway then she became number one she became the pirate queen and I think at its height she was in charge of thousands and thousands of ships Mm -hmm. and they were all going around like if you imagine I don't know like a a floating United Nations of pirate ships going around plundering the coast Um, and she wasn't you know I think what people don't understand from things like Pirates of the Caribbean is that pirates had a very systematic you know, you had to have some sort of a government and a system of control in order to keep all these like pirates in check. So she had loads of laws. So she had things like, if you raped anyone, you'd be executed. If you cheated on your wife whom you uh, married as a result of plundering a village, for instance, you would also be executed. And she was so successful at doing what she did and controlling this entire fleet that eventually the Chinese government paid her to retire. Mm. So they basically were like, you're too good at this. We can't be bothered with catching up with you anymore. Please take this money and leave us alone. And then she did. And then she just disappeared into the fog of time. And the reason why I love that story is because if it wasn't for that story, I don't think this book series would have gotten commissioned. You can also see her in Pirates of the Caribbean. She makes a little cameo. Mm. It was on recently on, I think, like, Film 4, again, like a rerun. Mm. And I looked out for her and I was like, God, you know, you've put a real-life character from the history books into your film who is way more interesting than the actual film itself. And it's <laughs> such a waste. That's, they should have just made the whole film about her. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is what I go, this is what I go around telling people. When mm. I do talks and when I do... Uh, Q&As and panels, I'm always like, look, you talk about Hollywood having no ideas. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Just look at these books. You know, there are so many women who even if it wasn't a biopic, you could just take little gems from their stories and turn them into a TV series, a TV show. You know, I think what there've been so many TV shows now that have been based on uh loosely fictionalized historical narratives. Mm. You know, you have stuff like uh Wolf Hall. I think there was one about Professor Kinsey, the guy who did the Kinsey report. Yeah. I mean, Hollywood is desperate for ideas and I'm just like it's right there in front of you. Yeah. It's in the history books. It should give you a call. <laughs> <laughs> give me a call if you're listening to <laughs> if this. If you are listening. <laughs> and in the in the leaders, there's a few stories uh, that I'd actually love to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the stories I found particularly striking is the, the Mirabal sisters, who were three political activists in the Dominican Republic who were assassinated on the same day in 1960. Could you tell us a bit about them? The Mirabal sisters are a trio of women who I was again slightly nervous of putting them in because mm-hmm. they are very, very well known back in their home country. There's murals, obelisks, commemorative plaques dedicated to them. But I wanted to put them in because I think the fact that we don't know more about them in the West is a real sign of how Western-centric our perspective on women's history is. Mm. Because, you know, they were three incredible women who were essentially fighting an oppressive regime. There was a dictator called Rafael Trujillo who seized power and basically went around obviously doing all the things that dictators do, killing people, but also I think in a real example what kind of man he was, renamed everything after himself. Nice. So he renamed the highest power after himself. He renamed cities after himself, you know, roads, the whole shebang. And, you know, for a country that had never seen this kind of megalomania before, obviously a resistance was going to have emerged. So Patria, Minerva and Maria Teresa were the three sisters who were working with the underground resistance to try and assassinate him. And unfortunately, they then got found out and on the way to visit their husbands and partners who were in jail again on a resistance plot. They were basically driven off the side of the road and killed and their death the day of their death is 
25th November, which is also the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And I think it's really interesting because that's a UN date, you know, so you might have heard of it, actually. Um, but not a lot of people know that it stems from the date of their assassination. And that, to me, just kind of says it all. You know, we have all these days and commemorations and, you know, the kind of dates where we all kind of think, oh, yeah, let's think more about being a woman about being women, isn't being a woman sometimes really awful? Don't we, don't we get oppressed? Blah, blah, blah. But also, here's the story of three sisters who were fighting oppression in their lives and were killed for it. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't know as much as we should about them. I didn't know that. And I should know that. And that's, I mean, it's strange that we, yeah, if that's the story behind the day, there's almost an erasure behind the yeah. actual real story in something that they're trying to shed a light on. History is a strange phenomenon, right? So mm. I think in some ways, depending on how we remember days and dates, it can almost obscure the meaning behind them. And I think that example, the Mirabel sisters, is a really good illustration of that. But then also you think about how, uh, for instance, pop culture and the way we're taught history in school serves to obscure the real story and the real portrait of the actual historical account. And, you know, you can argue with someone who doesn't believe in gender equality, who doesn't believe in feminism, and will say, oh, but it's all subjective, isn't it? It's just my opinion versus yours. Who's to say who's right? But at the end of the day, you can't argue with history. Um, You can't argue with the fact that this happened. And I think that what we have to do is we have to get a lot better at remembering history in its whole three-dimensional fullness. Mm. So, you know, when you think of an event like World War II, do you know that women contributed towards the war effort? When you think of some someone like Alan Turing, for instance, who was so instrumental in breaking the German code, did you know that where he worked was full of women who were basically doing the grunt work of mathematical calculations to try and break those codes? A lot of people don't, but I think if they did, maybe we'd come up with a more well-rounded idea of what women can do and what their contributions towards uh, our current society. Because if we don't start remembering, then we're just going to be left with nothing. No, you're completely right. And there's another story, actually, in the same book. In summer 1976, Jaya Ben Desai began her role as the leader of the strikers in Saris, the first worker strike that united South Asian migrant women with working class trade unionists. What did Jaya Ben achieve and what can we learn from her? So Jayabin Desai came over from East Africa, uh, which at the time, parts of East Africa were part of the British Empire. So they came to, you know, the UK, the heart of empire, kind of similar to my journey, really, from Singapore to the UK. And she found work at Grunwick Film Processing Laboratories. So probably don't remember this, but once upon a time, people used to use film cameras. And then in order to get the film processed, you had to send it off. And that was where places like where Jaiban worked came into play. So they would process people's holiday snaps, you know, arty nudes if they took them in the time. Um, but having said that, conditions at the lab were atrocious. So they were really ruling with an iron fist. I think some people said that they were scared to even go to the toilet because you had to ask your supervisor for permission to get up and go to the loo, which you know, sounds like, might sound like nothing, but when you think about it, it's so degrading. Like, imagine mm-hmm. having to go to your boss every time you need to pee and say, sorry, I just need to 
go and have to wait on his approval whether you can use a loo or not it was one of those things that I think that when you think about it you just get a sense of how horrible the place she was at work so she organized her workplace and then she led walkouts and she sourced support from other trade unions which at the time were very were very very much uh not full of the kind of people that Jabin worked with so the film processing lab was mainly south asian women uh the working class movement at the time was very much white working class men but still they kind of formed this alliance which then resulted in mass striking at the factory in pickets and in some cases it ended up in really really heavy police action so you'd have people who were literally being sent to hospital because of the police crackdown on it wow. so yeah it was astonishing i think to think about when this happened because mm. it was 1976 so when you think about it that's what 49 years ago which it's not that long ago mm. there's still people who use film cameras and he's he you know use these kind of processing labs to process film and she was i mean i'm just going to read you some of the stuff that she said so when she led one of the first walkouts of 100 people uh one of her managers was compared her to compared them to a bunch of chattering monkeys which is also obviously ra- very racist yeah. racist as hell um and she said what you are running is not a factory it is a zoo But in a zoo there are many types of animals. Some are monkeys who dance on your fingertips. Others are lions who can bite your head off. We are those lions, Mr. Manager. Oh my god. I love that. So good. That's amazing. I I think that well again, this is the kind of thing that should be turned into a movie. Ken Loach, do Literally, it. <laughs> it has to happen. I can't even imagine like having finding the courage to like say say I'm a lion I'm going to bite your head off to my employer. <laughs> yeah, I mean crazy. I mean, But at the same guts. time, completely possible if you can just I think the thing about the thing about unions and the thing about I think mass movements of people is that what the effect that they have is that they make you believe that you're part of something much bigger and more powerful than you as a single unit. And I think mm-hmm. that's what people that Jaib and Desai are about. So, you know, there are plenty of women in the books who achieved everything they did as a single unit as a solo person. But at the same time, there are so many people who are emblematic of mass social movements and groups who, you know, individually were very powerless and oppressed, but when they came together were much greater than the sum of their parts. And the third person I want to ask you about, my family is Northern Irish. So, when I spotted a story about Belfast in the book, my eyes lit up and it, the name is Marianne McCracken it's it's one I'd never heard before and I actually text my dad about it asking if he knew about her but he did not so um I want to know who was she and what did she do oh she's a great one I'm glad I'm glad that you you <laughs> spotted her did you know she was Irish immediately from her name I could tell like I was like yeah. oh that's a really that's a very like Irish sounding name <laughs> and I was like let me read more <laughs> so again Marianne McCracken is the kind of person that i think you know she's not a gandhi figure in that a lot of people don't know about her but i think that what she represents is also the kind of the smaller person who nevertheless contributes a lot to society mm. so she was born in 1770 but uh she was i guess you would call her landed gentry i don't was mm. that did that term kind of like exist then i think so yeah I'm not a historian so I could be completely off. 
<laughs> so she so she was I guess what's called a social reformer. So she donated and supported many many philanthropic causes. You know, welfare of children, reforming the prison system, um, chim- like stopping chimney young boys from being employed as chimney sweeps. You know, like wow. in Mary Poppins, and it looks all joyous and la di da, and it's actually not because you get stuck in a chimney, then you die. Yeah. So she was campaigning to put a stop to that as well. But what I love about Mary's story is that she's an example of where if you care about society and if you care about the welfare of people who are not like yourself, you can still, you can care so deeply about it. You can put your own life and your livelihood on the line as well. So she felt really strongly about women's rights and also the abolition of slavery, Mm. which, you know, at the time for someone in the 18th century who's, Irish, who's white, who's a woman, was not something that I don't, you know, she probably had never really encountered slaves before, slavery directly, but Mm. she still heard about it and felt so strongly that she had to campaign against it. I'm just going to read you something about what she wrote. So she kind of felt that what was happening with slavery was similar to the political oppression of the Irish under British rule and how women were oppressed by men. So she wrote, Is it not almost time for the clouds of error and prejudice to disperse and that the female part of the creation, as well as the male, should throw off the fetters with which they have been so mentally bound? I think the reign of prejudice is nearly at an end and that the truth and justice of our cause alone is sufficient to support it, as there can be no argument produced in favour of the slavery of women that has not been used in the favour of general slavery. So I think, you know, this is what you might call intersectionality, like hundreds of years before the term was even coined, you know. So she's drawing a line from her own personal oppression as a woman and seeing how it's reflected in the oppression of other marginalised people. And she's campaigning for all of them. And I think that's just really incredibly admirable. And it's something that I think is a, is really lost sometimes in nowadays where people get so caught up in uh, campaigning on like a singular cause mm. that they don't stop and see how... Because human nature is shit. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the way that the way that we perpetuate oppression and prejudice and all the systems that we build around it to scaffold it over and paper it over and claim that it's okay, get replicated all over the world in different Mm. contexts. And I think that sometimes you come across people like Mary McCracken and you think, wow, you know. Even in the even in the 18th century, people were even in the 17th century. Sorry, people knew about this and they could see it for what it was. Yeah. And I think that's really you know that's really impressive. So she's one of the people that I included because I was just like, oh, I feel like you would have been alive now and you would have been still furious and doing shit. Yeah, she'd be like tweeting about injustice. Yeah, yeah. yeah that when you were saying that, like Gina Martin actually recently, and we're having her on the podcast. Um, she talked about how she thinks that the world would be so much like it would be a better place if people cared about causes that didn't di- weren't just like directly, you know, affecting oh, their that's lives. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, you know, like this, you can care about stuff that maybe doesn't affect you, and maybe that will help somebody else's life, but not ne- necessarily like yeah. you won't feel the consequences of that. I think that's very true. I think the ultimate test of this is climate change, right? So, Mm. you know, climate change does affect people in the UK, but who it does affect way more are people in developing countries, in the global south, in places where, 
you know, the infrastructure isn't there to cope with the pace of change as it is. Mm. Gina's completely right. You know, I think climate change is one of those issues where it is a real test of human compassion. Like how much and how far are you willing to feel human compassion for someone you may never meet, for someone you may never see, for a country you may never visit? Mm. You know, I don't know. I guess we'll see when the election happens. Yeah, there's a there's an empathy gap, I think. But my, my final question um, for you is, how can we ensure that women's place in history is properly recorded and like going forward? Um, and what change needs to take place to make sure women's achievements are given their rightful place in history? Mm, I think the simple answer, well, well, there's several answers to this. The simplest one is put more women's names on shit, you know? <laughs> uh, I think I reference this in an introduction to one of the books where I say that, you know, there's a reason why men get so obsessed with building statues of themselves and naming buildings after themselves and roads. And it's because those things stick around. Uh, A book, on the other hand, as much as my publishers will hate to hear me say this, (laughs) is relatively easy to go out of print. Mm. Um, So there's that. There's a proper commemoration of women in those kind of very concrete material spaces. And then I think also, you know, it's about what you might call soft power, you know, cultural artifacts, movies, films, TVs, books, uh, school books. Women just need to be kept in the cultural conversation for as long as possible. And, you know, if they aren't, then the places that omit them should be called out. So Mm. if you go to an art exhibition, for instance, and you notice that it's all men, call it out, you know, just... And it doesn't, I don't mean like go on Twitter and tweet at them. You can obviously do that. But even something like going to, going up to the visitor's book at the end and asking why there isn't any women, asking someone on the desk why there isn't any women in that show, you know, things like that, that tell people that women and, you know, men and non-binary people, if they want to be, if they wanted to participate, we, we know that you're omitting them. We know that there's an absence here and it doesn't make any sense. I went to a Tate Britain show and if you go out of Pimlico Station towards the museum, there's a whole corridor of murals of artworks mm-hmm. that are, I guess, owned by the Tate Britain. And I don't think a single one of them is by a woman. That's interesting. And yet almost all of them are of women. Oh, that is even weirder than yeah. the male gaze, basically. Yeah, exactly. But... I don't know how many people have probably walked down that corridor and not even noticed. Yeah. Wow. And I think that it's interesting what you say about, like, I think, you know, we don't necessarily have to always be, and I think it does help, you know, there's obviously like putting things on Twitter. That is often where, you know, activism takes place. Mm -hmm. But there's also something to be said for sending an email you know in the when we interviewed um diane monday you know she was saying the thing is the opposition are often the most vocal when it comes to abortion rights Mm -hmm. and so if you feel strongly about something email your mp or email the person that can do something about it i was just gonna say email your mp i've started emailing my mp all the time and it's really it's surprisingly satisfying (laughs) just because i think that a lot of people neglect these old-fashioned forms of communication Mm. and sometimes because they're so neglected it counts for more if you use them yeah exactly that's all of my questions so uh thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you for having me of course it's a pleasure if you liked this episode of history becomes her please subscribe rate and review If you have suggestions of history-making women we should feature on our podcast, or you simply want to get in touch, 
find us on Twitter at HBHpod. And you can find me on Twitter at RVT9. History Becomes Her is a mashable podcast created by Rachel Thompson and Maria Demenzi. Our artwork is by Vicky Lita. Our music was produced by Christiane Straker. Special thanks to Shannon Canellan and Nikolai Nikolov. And why not check out our sister podcast, Fiction Predictions? Thank you so much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.